Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Marshak. Today I'm speaking with Alex Barcel. Alex is a development professional in major gifts and donor relations at Michigan Radio, a public radio station, and NVR syndicate, as well as a good friend of mine. We talk about the role of public media coming into the start of the 21st century, the funding of public radio, its unique niche in the age of internet journalism, why now everyone can talk, and the difficult problem of maintaining institutional trust in an increasingly noisy information ecology. Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Marshak. Today I'm speaking with Alex Parcell. Alex is a good friend of mine, a really independent political thinker, uh, someone who is also now a fellow graduate of Michigan State University's School of Public Affairs over at James Madison College. And basically since finishing his, his academic work over there, he's been with the most important public broadcasting station here in Michigan, which is Michigan Radio. Alex, uh, do you want to take a moment, introduce yourself to the listeners and tell the audience a little bit about what you do? Yeah, thank you. Um, So uh, I am a development professional at Michigan Radio. Um, I work with our major donors, um, but I'm also part of the broader communications team um, helping to shape the... um, off-air messaging and uh, communication with both our donors and non-donors of the station. Um, so uh, that's how I'm connected with public media. Um, but like Alex said, I am also a graduate of James Madison College at, at Michigan State University, where I had the same major as Alex, actually, in political theory and constitutional democracy. And um, uh, my interest in public radio is a lot less as a fundraiser and more as somebody who's really eager to participate in what I feel is a the really important role that public media plays in our uh, public discourse here in the U.S. And and, um, I feel like my educational background, together with uh, how I work in fundraising, uh, makes a big impact in that. Great. And uh, so let's just get right into the meat of the topic, you know, right away. Obviously, the media landscape has changed a lot, specifically within the last 20 years. You've got the rise of the Internet. You've got all sorts of alternative and independent media operations that can now get set up at a pretty low cost and, you know, broadcast all over the world. Even what we're doing here, um, sort of the podcast space, exists as sort of a, a parallel kind of media institution that, that in some ways rivals the potential reach of traditional radio or even overcomes it in certain instances. Uh, where, where do you view the, the role of public media within this new landscape and how do you think they're carving out a niche for themselves to maintain, you know, their importance and relevance to their communities going forward? Okay. Um, well, I want to answer that. Um, I want to answer both parts of that question in uh, in different ways. Um, first of all, um, comparing public radio to, say, uh, something like a podcast form, because you're right. If you take podcasts as a whole, they probably have a larger reach overall than, um, you know, a single, uh, public media institution. But then again, just as always, um, 
you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, and so I certainly see there's a huge advantage in decentralized media in being able to explore and cover a huge variety of topics and, and even participate in journalism in very important ways. But I feel like um, one of the huge advantages that um, public media has is that it actually uh, is both a centralized institution um, with a lot of the benefits of a decentralized institution, and that's due to the way that um, the way that public radio, in particular, is structured, where uh, people think public radio and they think NPR, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the reality is is that NPR is a very important part of what public media is. Uh, they're kind of like a central uh, parent organization, um, but all of the stations that you listen to when you either you know listen on your car radio or you stream online, um, they're actually individually operated and all over the country, right? So there's a degree to which public media fits into the media landscape in both a decentralized and a centralized way, right? Where it has all the advantages of having um, a really powerful, nationally syndicated, very well-resourced institution that is NPR um, to both cover national and international stories. Um, and then that that content is... Um, is put out by local stations, which themselves will run local and state level content, um, you, you know, with a similar level of vigor and, and, uh, and quality. Um, so, so to ask the question, how does public media fit in? It really depends on, um, depends on which station you're listening to, because some are more focused on entertainment, local news, maybe classical radio and others. Some of the larger ones are focused on, um, and are very well resourced in doing things like local and state level journalism. So it fits in in a lot of different ways. So I, I did want to just briefly go over with you um, a delineation for those who might be confused about sort of the different terms that you hear around public radio about the way that these um, I guess, networks are structured. So Michigan Radio is obviously, you know, a a public radio station here in Michigan that has offices in Ann Arbor and Flint and Grand Rapids. Uh, And as one of the um, collective of public radio stations around the country, it's one of the founding members of National Public Radio, right, which is sort of the the broader, known as NPR, the broader... Uh, nonprofit public broadcasting organization, uh, and, and as a founding member, it, it syndicates some of their programming, but it's also, you know, adjusting all of its programming to the, you know, the demands of the local listeners and the interests uh, of, you know, their their donor base, which, by the way, does constitute the the majority of public radio uh, funding. Do you want to get into the sort of the state of economics of public radio real quick? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about that. Yeah, sure. I appreciate that question and clarification. Um, and I think I need to both address the funding and the structure a little more because they're you know you need to understand one in order to understand the other. Um, so you're absolutely right. Um, I, I'm actually not certain if the term founding member is correct, but we are what you'd consider to be a member station. Well, that's, that's just what it says on Wikipedia. Oh, okay. (laughs) It says you're a founding Um, member. Well, we, we are a member station of NPR, Mm -hmm. um, which is to say that, um, we are part of their network of stations that broadcast their content and we actually pay for that content. We don't, um, we're not, 
part of NPR as much as we're a partner to NPR. Um, and so uh, the the way that that works is if you if you think of um, if you think of a public radio station as uh, you know uh, if you if you think of their schedule right and you go from midnight to midnight and think about what's broadcast on the station. Um, uh, NPR has what are termed anchor programs, which are all things considered um, in the afternoon and morning edition uh, in the morning. Um, and those are their primary like national news magazine shows where they do breaking news and features, um, and that's central to NPR. And almost all member stations will carry at least those shows. And then the member stations themselves will build out the rest of the clock with whatever content that they uh, that they think fit to serve their audience with. Um, some of that content is going to be more stuff from NPR. Some of the smaller stations that can't produce as much of their own content, um, you know, more of what they broadcast will be coming from you know bigger organizations like NPR, PRX, or PRI. Um, but for a, a you know a medium-sized station like Michigan Radio, especially one that has gone out of its way to be very well resourced in terms of this own, um, journalism and content production. Uh, we have a lot of our clock filled with our own programming, like Stateside, which is a daily news magazine. We do, um, not to mention our news broadcasts, um, which, you know, uh, our newscasts fill a pretty substantial amount of our time on air as well. And that's all local work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that, that structure and that partnership and that balance is it's unique to each station. Um, and as I said, uh, we actually pay for the privilege to, to, to have those, those national programs. So that brings us to the financial aspect, right? Um, NPR scales how much it charges member stations based on their ability to pay, essentially, based on how much they themselves have in revenue and the size of the station. And then the stations themselves are responsible for their own budget. Um, sometimes stations are, um, you know, part of larger organizations. Ours actually is. Ours is a uh, our license is held by the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and some stations whose licenses are held by large organizations, those larger organizations actually are, you know, responsible for a lot of the management of their budget. In our case, we are actually financially independent um, mm-hmm. for I think almost five years, six years now, where our all of our revenue. And all of our expenditures are uh, are are our own, um, and uh, the the consequence of that is that um, we're able to take full responsibility for the content we put on the air, both from an editorial perspective um, and and otherwise in terms of like a programming decision perspective. Um, and that revenue, uh, over sixty percent of it, actually comes from just households and listeners. Um, so in short, uh, and I'm going on a little long on this point, but just to tie it in a bow, um, our revenue, um, uh, 60 to 65 percent of it comes from listener households, members, um, who we call members. Um, about 20 to 30 percent of it comes from what we call corporate underwriters. These are folks who pay to essentially uh, say that they're underwriting us. It's not advertising, strictly speaking, because the rules are different. Uh, they can't message. They can just say that they're sponsors of us. Um, and then the, uh, the other small percentage is broken out into things like the, the cash we get from CCP or, um, or, uh, or excuse me, CPB, um, <laughs> and other national sources. Um, so, so yeah, so we're, we're a very, we're a truly independent station. We're beholden to our listeners most primarily. If you consider us a business, our listeners themselves are our largest shareholder. Yeah, definitely by far. Um, I think you know over fifty-five percent of revenues are coming from listeners alone. 
So the vast, you know, a, a good majority. Um, and if you I- include the corporate, um, I guess, partnerships, uh, that, that, that number goes up to something like 90%. So overwhelmingly, um, it's, it's community supported in one way or another. Um, I did want to ask you a little bit about the way in which your listenership skews. Uh, you know, I, I would assume that your the donors who support the station are somewhat reflective of the demographics of your listeners. Um, if if not, you know, maybe they're a more extreme version of your average listener. Um, but Michigan radio listeners tend to be they tend to be very well educated. Um, it boasts here actually on the Michigan radio website that they're two hundred eight percent more likely than the average American to have completed a graduate degree. Um, and that 87% of your listeners agree that uh, being well-educated is very important to them as a statement. Uh, there's also you know, uh, a high level of um, affluence among um, Michigan, uh, at least uh, among NPR listeners, uh, according to the Michigan Radio website. You know, they've got a much higher than average um, income for NPR listeners, so it's around $102,000 a year. So... How do you think the 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 listenership for public radio? Um, how, how do you think the demographics of that, in terms of education, in terms of income, skew the the content that gets produced? And do you think that there are opportunities that exist for public radio to have a more equitable appeal? Um, because I, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that something like public radio uh, tends to have this sort of um, more elite demographic. Yeah. Um, so are you asking about, you know, like whether or how, um, whether or not or how public radio could or should uh, have a more diverse listenership? Or are you just asking me to comment on the nature of the listenership? Um, well, I guess I guess there were two questions there. One one was, yeah, how 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 could they maybe have a more diverse listenership? Um, but the other one was also was just you know if you think that there's an effect on who the listeners tend to be um, that that carries over into the programming and the kind of interests that get picked up. Yeah, I don't um, have any specific examples that I'm going to pick on here. I was just wondering. Yeah, so. You know, it's. It, I, I want to preface all this by saying that I don't. I'm not a programming decision maker. I obviously represent uh, the station. Um, I don't run it. Um, and but uh, you are you are very familiar with the fundraising operations. Yes, um, and for that matter, I'm more familiar than just that. I, I, I first of all, I am myself a listener um, and a pretty hardcore public radio fan. And in addition to that, uh, it's a pretty small staff and I've been lucky enough to learn a lot about the operation as a whole um, and participate in it um, more so than just uh, fundraising alone. Um, so, so I just wanted to preface by saying that I'm not a programming decision maker, nor do I necessarily want to be. Um, but I, I, my, the first thing that I want to say is that it's, it's a bit of a difficult tightrope to walk. Um, in terms of balancing, you know, whether or not you alter um, uh, what and why you're putting things out there in order to appeal to perhaps a different listenership. Um, and you might uh, you might say that 
we're comfortable with the idea that the majority of our audience feels that it's important to be very educated. Um, because a, sure. something that undergirds the entire philosophy of, uh, of public media and public radio in particular, um, is that, you know, we want to be curious about and informed about the world around us. Um, and, and so there's a way in which, um, you know, those are the values of, of what we do. Uh, uh, these are our values. Um, and we have found a pretty, uh, large and dedicated community that shares those values. And we're comfortable with the idea that, that we are, um, you know, working to serve those values. Um, and so there's, I guess there's, I guess to be completely frank, there's a certain undertone, at least for me personally, um, that if somebody's not interested in listening to public radio because it's not a, an entertaining to them, that's fine. It's not their cup of tea. They can listen to something else. Um, but I also would say that if we, if we include public media as a whole and not just simply public radio, um, and even within just public radio, public radio and public media as a whole are, are different things in different places. So uh, public, uh, public media stations are going to be reflective of the needs and demands of the audiences that they serve. And so in a, in a very, in a very highly, one may even say overeducated place like Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, of course the station that is out of Ann Arbor, Michigan is going to be focused on, on that demographic and, and their, um, you know, their listening habits and what they'd like to hear. But there are, there are, um, public media stations all over the country that do all kinds of different programming from, like I said, uh, you know, classical music, entertainment programming, educational programming, and specifically public television, uh, does a lot of educational programming for children. Um, and so, uh, I suppose we are what we are partly because of who we serve and who's interested in, in listening, but also we're, we're guided by these values about, you know, why we do what we do. And we don't necessarily expect or demand that everyone share those values. We'd of course like more people to, <laughs> um, and, uh, as our listening population ages and as we're conscious of changes in how people consume media, I will say that we are very conscious and attempting to adapt to how people are consuming media and making sure that we engage with other demographics. Um, but we are not going to do that by compromising the philosophy and our values that have led us to the kind of programming that we have. It might be delivered in a different way. Um, and it might be, um, packaged up in maybe a slightly different way. Michigan radio has, has actually gotten into the podcasting game. Michigan radio has a really robust online presence, both on, uh, social media and on our website, which serves as both a streaming platform and where we have web exclusive news, et cetera. Um, but the val the, the 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 values are not going to change, no, nor do I think they should. Well, yeah, I mean, I I definitely see um, you know a value in remaining consistent uh, with sort of the ethos of public radio uh, as it's been. Uh, it, it so so you're correct that they are um, beginning to move online, and you know you are seeing that. Obviously, NPR actually dominates much of the podcasting space. Um, and so it's not as if public radio was sort of um, late to the party on adopting these technologies, or if they were, they at least uh, managed to do so quite effectively anyway. Uh, and, and I see these running as, as somewhat adjacent. But I guess, I guess the issue and, – and, and here's the thing. I have no issue at all as long as 
you know, uh, public radio keeps providing a good service to their listeners and they keep getting support from their donors. I mean, it seems like overall it's a very um, uh, symbiotic relationship that's going on. It's a self-sustaining enterprise. So I have no qualms about any of that. I guess what I'm trying to, to get from you is what niche do you think that they're filling that isn't being filled elsewhere now that there's so many other avenues for consuming your media? Because obviously yeah. people are still choosing to listen. Heck, people aren't even listening on the radios you know, in their cars anymore with everything shut down, but they're still listening to Michigan Radio online. Yeah. Um, so what do you think, what do you think that they've, they're offering that's, that's missing what, everywhere else because people aren't getting this. Value add? Yeah. People aren't getting this from the New York times. They're not getting it from their local newspaper. They're not getting it from YouTube or, you know, from the plethora of other potential outlets that are available. Well, okay. So what are you doing uh, different? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, part of it goes back to the way we were, um, discussing, uh, you know, the point that I made earlier about how there's, there's pros and cons to being, uh, you know, a part of what we might call the decentralized new media. Um, and then there's pros and cons to being, you know, what we might call the, the, the golden standard so, so of, of centralized media. The, the, the core, the core issue is that there is just a scarcity on who can and who could not have the keys to broadcast before based right. on the available AM and FM channels, like period. Right. You know, there's a certain number of bandwidths that you can broadcast on. And if you don't have a license for one of those from the FCC, you don't get to talk. And now that's right. different. Everyone can talk. Right. Everyone, everyone can talk, but, um, you know, I would almost go so far to say that, uh, this, for the same reason that, um, you know, we've seen these, uh, the failures of say the local newspapers and the kind of like old guard local media, um, public media is kind of thriving right now. Um, and as I was, as I was getting to, I think that, uh, public media and public radio in particular is kind of uniquely situated to be the best of both uh, the pros of the, uh, the power, credibility and resources of centralized media and also, uh, the pros of this kind of, you know, in the trenches, diffuse, um, form of, of more personal journalism that's taking place. Um, and, and, and I think public radio done correctly, done well, gets to check off most of the boxes that make each of those things good in and of their own right. Um, so, uh, part of that has to do with the structure that I indicated where you have these local stations that are serving, you know, smaller, more, um, and are more, more smaller audiences and more in tune to their audiences while also having the, 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 the power and credibility and uh, resources of the centralized institutions. Part of it is the structure, but part of it is also the way the information is delivered. I think if you were to compare, say, um, you know, a newspaper to, uh, all things considered, a public radio anchor show. Um, uh, both are curated, right? And and this is this is actually one of the key differences between um, uh, podcast uh, media like podcasting, this this sort of like new decentralized media, and public radio, which is that public radio still very much is if you're talking about our signal only, um, it's very much a curated product, right? Um, unlike 
podcasting where, you know, as the consumer, I go to iTunes and I'm like, oh, what am I interested in hearing about right now? I'm going to go on YouTube and I'm going to be like, oh, which, you know, what interesting biography am I interested in listening to? Um, you know, what video game video am I looking for? Um, the, the idea behind, uh, the, the public radio institution is that there's an element of trust where the listener comes to us because they're like, okay, um, I trust that this institution is able to, um, you know, put together a picture of the world that is useful to me, right? Because I, as the listener, don't have time to dig my fingers into literally everything that's going on out in the world, right? But at the same time, I do feel this kind of local, more local connection um, uh, on like the community level to this station that I donate money to and that I trust, mm -hmm. right? And so the relationship is such that, um, you know, we, we have, uh, we're that we have the trust of our audience. Um, and so because of that, we're able to behave like a New York times or Washington post. Um, but we also have the connection to our audience. So we're able to behave like a, like a, um, like a, like a, like a, like a YouTube channel, if you will, in that trust element where it's like, Oh, you know, I feel like I'm a part of this community, you know? Um, and I, like I said, I feel like it's, uh, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit for the purpose of the argument, obviously. Um, but I do feel like there is that degree to which the public, public media lives in, in both of those worlds. And I think that's a tremendous advantage because, um, you still do need trust, credibility, and institutional power um, to actually do the kind of journalism that we need. Not all the kinds of journalism. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say that to do journalism you need to be well-resourced, but there is definitely kinds of journalism that are necessary that do need to be well-resourced. And that is one of the most important things that public media does right now because our resources are not tainted by – the kinds of corporate and other institutions that exist out in the world, our resources come from our audience and yet it's still a very powerful, well-resourced engine. Right. And so that's, that's what makes it unique. That's the role that it fills. Um, that's its value add. So because public media is decentralized because they're operating at a, a more local scale and they have a tight feedback loop with their donors and listeners, uh, they're not subject. You're saying that the, they're not subject to, some of the same pressures, both economic as well as perhaps, you know, ideological and otherwise, that sort of these large, um, large media, large existing media institutions, whether those are TV broadcasters, radio broadcasters, um, these sort of centralized behemoths uh, mm. that, that have sort of emerged. And, and yet they're still, they still have enough um, uh, carrying capacity in terms of their, their revenue and their operations that they can conduct a type of journalism that might be out of the bounds of, say, you know, independent journalists just working on their own or sort of smaller publications um, that just don't have a lot of resources. Is that that's exactly. sort of the fit? Yep, exactly. The only thing that I want to just uh, critique slightly about the way that you framed that is I wouldn't call it a feedback loop per se between our donors because we don't – we don't – like donors don't uh, – like – so we're not in the business of telling people what they want to hear. Um, we work um, with very, very high uh, 
you know, journalistic ethics in mind. Um, and we're not interested in selling our product. We're interested in being good journalists. If we're talking about the journalism aspect of our operation, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it, the point is very much so that that is what people support. They don't want to be told what they want to be, want to hear. They don't want to exist in, you know, a feedback loop. They, they want to hear, um, they, 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 they basically, they've accepted that we're telling the truth when we say that we're interested in, um, a, a, a more traditional idea of balanced journalism. Um, and, and, and people have bought into that now. And, and that's, and that's based on having a, a consistent track record Yes. That validates that. Yep. The, the obviously, you know, there, there's obviously a perception and I think it's a, a fair perception that public media tends to lean uh, more to the left um, on many issues. But um, by the same token, they consistently rate as one of the most trusted forms of, of media in the country. Um, and it, so, as so, somebody who – yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say for the – general purposes of the show, we're not that actually interested in the left and right divide as it really gets talked about that much. Um, but the part of the polarization problem that is sort of the meta focus has to do with sort of the, uh, epistemological problem, which is the breakdown of sense making right. or the loss of trust in institutions and just sort of the inability to agree on any kind of a common narrative. Yeah, of course. Uh, do you think, that public media is playing a role in uh, maintaining an existing public narrative uh, in common uh, or ge- perhaps generating a newer one that we could go off as a baseline? Where, where do you see it within this sort of – because you, you keep talking about how, well, like the strength is that they, they trust that we're going to follow through on our ethical um, commitments – and values, yeah. that's sort of the, this meta process of how we arrive at the journalism that we deliver is maintaining an integrity that maybe isn't is getting harder to find these days. And I would actually agree with that from what I see. I don't I'll be honest, I don't pay a lot of attention to public radio. But when I do, um, it looks to me as if it still operates as a fairly balanced news source. Obviously, they're going to be biases, conscious and unconscious that yep. get into any kind of enterprise. Um, we, we actually, um, Michigan radio, um, itself was actually, uh, is in the middle of conducting a kind of self-reflection exercise right now. We're working with some consultants to, um, better focus our, our, uh, our values and mission statement right now. Um, and our entire staff have participated in one way or another in that internal conversation. And so it's really interesting that you bring up, of course, there'll be biases because journalists, at least in our case, not only are we not only are our journalists very well aware of that, um, but they're openly willing to say, you know, we work hard to um, meter our biases and be aware of our biases. Not we'll, we'll never promise not to have biases. All we can do is promise to be aware of our biases um, and not, uh, you know, operate with our biases in mind. Um, as best as we possibly can. And so, and so to your, okay. So, so I mean, I am interested in this greater meta discussion about, you know, how can we agree on, um, you know, a framework for discussion as a society. Right. Um, and, and how does public radio either contribute to that moving in a positive direction or is it neutral or, 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 you know, what's the, what's the deal? Um, 
and you're right to say that it's a, that's a very different conversation at the end of the day um, than is public radio a left or right leaning thing, right? That's not the same thing at all because you'll have some people who are more right leaning say, I really appreciate you know, listening to public radio because I feel like it's a balanced news source. And then you'll have people who are very, very far left leaning, uh, you know, persecuting us because we let Trump get elected or whatever the narrative is. Right. So, so it's, so, so, so let me, let me just give you an example of this. That's, um, not going to be as like polar as something like that. So, so just for this example, the world health organization, right. Mm -hmm. They committed uh, some pretty terrible fumbles with, uh, with their handling of the coronavirus situation initially by telling people not to wear masks, right? If you're Facebook, who has decided that they're going to do something with, um, you know, Facebook is concerned about this problem too. They're trying to increase trust. They're trying to increase the amount of valid news that gets out to people. Mm-hmm. And their solution to this is, well, we're only going to allow content that either echoes or supports authoritative sources, mm-hmm. right? And if someone like Facebook says, okay, the World Health Organization is now an authoritative source, therefore they're something that we're going to regulate and anything else that contradicts that we're going to get rid of. Mm. In the situation where now they've breached that trust by you know, just coming out with horrible misinformation that we – who knows where it came from. There's lots of speculation mm. about that. But the point being, if our authoritative sources themselves can't be trusted – how do you avoid falling into this um, this trap of like the this um, cascading collapse of truth? Because it may not be that I don't trust Michigan radio, but it may be that there are further along um, institutions of sense making and trust that you know um, you're in the habit of sharing with your listeners, right? But that yeah. I may encounter and say, well, that's not trustworthy. Therefore. This this other organization that's basing its reporting on this is also not trustworthy either because I think that they have an yeah. agenda. You know. Yeah. So I think it's um, I think it's really important as a consumer of media to try and recognize when an institution like either WHO or uh, a, a, a news organization like Michigan Radio. Let's say let's 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 play that out right and let's let's ask the question as a listener. Um, how do I perceive and how do I interact with that um, as somebody who's interested in not being just fed a narrative, right? Um, and so uh, I would I would say to myself, okay, well, the WHO's uh, said that uh, initially maybe people shouldn't wear masks. And then as an authoritative source, um, you know, traditional news organizations, and I, and I would, I would clump public, public media in as a more traditional news source, right? Um, a more old guard authoritative quote unquote news source, right? Um, and then these other news sources say Michigan radio goes on air and reports the WHO has said, uh, that, uh, we probably shouldn't, uh, be wearing face masks. Right. And then we find out later that, that the WHO was wrong and that Michigan radio, uh, just accepted that as an authoritative source and reported that along. Right. I'm not saying that happened. I don't know whether or not it did. I haven't been following the no, no, sure, sure, sure. closely. I, but. This, is pu- this is purely just a thought experiment, right? Um, so I, 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 from the perspective of a listener and a consumer of that media, my interest is in the aftermath of that is I'm asking myself a few questions. The first thing I'm trying to ask myself is um, does either Michigan Radio or WHO have you know, a vested interest in um, you know, uh, 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 propagating that, that, that incorrect information? 
um, number one. And I'll try and be a critical observer and think to myself, oh, is that true? Is that not true? And then finally, I'd be interested in looking at the reaction of something like of, of Michigan radio to that kind of a falsehood, right? So a- after the fact, is Michigan radio interested in doubling down on what we now know isn't true? Or are they interested in saying, um, you know, uh, further reports have indicated that this thing that we've reported before actually isn't true. Um, so of course, you know, journalism and journalists are always going to be hamstrung by the fact that sometimes a consensus can be drawn from authoritative sources that turns out not to be true, right? Like that happens all the time in history. And I think what's important to realize is that just because a journalism organization can accept an, uh, an ultimately incorrect uh, tr- thing from an authoritative source does not mean that the entire system in and of itself is flawed because it would be flawed if the system could not adjust from that, right? It would be flawed if uh, the journalism organization uh, would not have the ability, the credibility, the the values to actually go back and dissect that and attempt to dig into the truth, right? Um, But I feel as though public media in particular has a very strong willingness to criticize itself, criticize its past track record on reporting. And you'll frequently hear on, you know, whether it's NPR or, or Michigan radio programs, you know, we always have an interest in, in um, both issuing corrections and not just issuing corrections, but then discussing corrections, right? Because it's really, really easy as a newspaper to just, you know, say the next day, um, you know, at the bottom of page 20, oh, by the way, this thing that was a front page story yesterday is total nonsense. Like, you know, yeah, our bad. Our, our, our bad, right? Um, but it's a lot harder when you're in the position of having what I would argue to be a lot more intimate relationship, you know, this, this kind of voice connection and, you know, the kinds of personalities that drive um, public, public radio in the form of our hosts and journalists who are on air. You know, they, they're willing to come forward and say, you know, let's have a discussion about an incorrect perception that was had by many of us in the um, – you know, in the journalism community. And, and I think, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to talk about Trump in detail, but I do think that the aftermath of President Trump's election um, was an interesting time to be an observer of public media, right? Because um, you might say that some in media uh, kind of lost their heads and they were like, oh my God, we were convinced that, that this man could never be elected president. Um, and they kind of went into their feedback loop of, of um, you know, continuing to exist in a world where that was impossible, even though that it happened, right? And and, and I, as much as it's fair to say that that shock was shared in the public radio and public media community, I do feel as though if you compare the reactions, um, public radio has done a very deliberate job of attempting to be in touch with reality, as it were, and attempt to actually have real conversations about the the uh, you know the, the misunderstanding, if you will, um, in, in media that led to such a huge um, upset of expectations. Um, and and so you know, as uh, both as a part of that community professionally and as a listener, I was rather I would use the word proud to be able to listen to programming that was actually attempting to ask genuine questions about what different kinds of people in this country think and why they think it, as opposed to simply, you know, parroting a, a narrative about how insane it is that, that the president is the president. 
Mm-hmm. So I want to move this now into a, a totally different direction here. Um, Please. Your uh, listenership is uh, all over the state of Michigan, obviously. Um, I, I assume you have listeners all over the world. Is that correct? It is, but it's obviously mostly concentrated in Michigan. Yeah. And, you know, based on some of the stats I brought up earlier about the education level and the income level of um, sort of your, your, your the profile of a NPR or public radio listener, uh, I did have an interesting question for you, which is uh, how, how are you doing with young people? Is there a generational turnover that's happening right now in public radio? Are you experiencing that as well? Yeah. So I, I had, uh, earlier I had noted that we're well aware that our audience and our uh, both our listenership and our donors skew older and that that population is continuing to age in a way that might cause us some amount of worry um, as we look into the future. Um, some of this is, in my opinion, less due to public radio becoming less relevant and more due to the economic realities and differences between the generations, Right. Um, so in terms of when people enter their philanthropic years, if you will, um, generations that came before my generation had the luxury of contemplating their philanthropic life a lot earlier, I feel, than my generation will. Um, so, so just to be clear for the audience here, you and I are both millennials. Yes. Yes. So, um, so, so I, I, part of, uh, uh, this is, uh, my strong opinion on this matter is that, um, the millennial population is lagging behind for reasons that I think are fairly obvious in terms of basically having different economic starting points in many cases. Um, but I do feel as though that millennials will catch up and ultimately behave in a philanthropic manner that is, similar to their predecessors. Um, that that's part of it. That's, that's, that's my statement on the matter. Um, there are worries though, that from a, um, you know, setting aside their ability to be philanthropic, um, how millennials tend to be philanthropic is also somewhat distinct from their, you know, um, generations, uh, ahead of them. And, and in many cases it seems that um, younger people do not identify with the same kind of messaging that is persuasive to um, older generations in terms of why one should give and, and why one should participate in the community of, of donors for something like public radio. So that is, that is an ongoing discussion within the public media fundraising community. But I will say that um, that ongoing discussion is both vigorous well inform- and well-informed um, and we're in a position where um, I feel prepared to enter the next couple of decades with, um, you know, with a plan as opposed to simply blowing in the wind, if you will. Um, well, so, so I have a question about that. How much of that do you think is due to the effects of growing up in a different kind of media environment? So, for example, your much of your donor base is probably constituted by boomers and even some of the silent generation, um, given the education level, just the pure education level and income level stats would tell you that. Um, 
And so you have right there one generational cohort, the silence, who would have experienced radio initially as the dominant medium. And by the way, Michigan radio has been around for a while. So it's, you know, it's not like it's new on the block in that respect. Um, so what I'm saying is that they've been conditioned to interface with the news and with their media information through that medium. And then you've got the boomers where you have television rising as the dominant medium. And that goes all the way in through the 80s and into the 90s. And now you've got the Internet rising as sort of the, the next dominant um, media uh, interface, uh, infrastructure. So Gen Z, my cousins, for example... They, you and I remember, even as we were kids, you know, growing up and perhaps your parents or grandparents or some adult in your life, whoever, turning on, you know, and the local NPR station, maybe for me, it actually was Michigan Radio. Um, and that, uh, that like precise format of like, okay, you know, Terry Gross is going to welcome me into all, all things considered. And sorry, <laughs> did I screw that up? Yeah, no, it's Terry Gross's Fresh Air. Uh, um, who's yeah. those all things considered? Uh, a lot of different people. Well, um, okay. So Terry Gross is going to welcome me into Fresh Air. You know, there's going to be a 15-minute you know, um, digression on the topic of the day. And then there's going to be an exit loop. There's going to be music. And then there's going to be, um, you know, corporate sponsorships and, you know, thanking your donors and so forth. This is a very, very um, structured pattern that your mind is actually settling into a groove when you're listening to it, right? And it's yeah. the same thing with television. You've got timed breaks. It's all very consistent, very regular. The shows are specifically uh, crafted in a, in a very precise way so that you understand that your consciousness is actually entering into some sort of structure that they've created. Yeah. And with the internet culture, with the Gen Z kids coming up, they may have never been in a situation where their media diet wasn't a la carte, right. where they weren't choosing from any number of variety of options, many of which, by the way, uh, when you're talking about things like the podcast space, the YouTube space, uh, online video and audio streaming, et cetera, um, don't have this sort of rigid formal structure mm. where your brain gets into this regular pattern of, okay, I know that this is coming next and now this is coming. And I think maybe some of the Gen Z's, uh, some of the issues with attracting sort of the younger generations is just, it, it might, might be in the fact that they, they weren't raised in that kind of media environment. What do you think about that? I, I think that that's, I think that that's very true. Um, I like the, I like the terming of it as the kind of a la carte media. Um, uh, it's exactly the same dichotomy that I see. Um, this is what I was getting, this is uh, what I was referring to earlier, which is you have, you know, your curated media, and then you have your on-demand media, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, prior to Netflix and similar services, you turn on the TV and you were just like, well, it's nine o'clock. I have the choice of listening of, of these four channels. We're right? all watching the news at six because that's when the news is on. That's when the news is on. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And now um, – the the zoomers are out there being like i'm gonna watch my 13th episode of you know whatever at two o'clock in the morning because you know that's just what i can do um why would i ever live my life by other people's structure when i can do whatever the heck i want um i think that that is a 
Interestingly, I think that that is both a huge problem and its own kind of advantage for public media because this goes back to what it means to be curated, right? The huge disadvantage of curated media is what we just discussed, which is to say that it's on someone else's schedule, right? But the huge advantage is the level of uh, of, of of trust that that you have in the curator. Right, and so this this goes back to whether or not somebody wants to, whether somebody wants to be more informed about the world than they can be by deciding for themselves what they can and can't see, right? And so this um, I was noting earlier, uh, you know, you can either think that you know your own browsing through whatever set of YouTube videos and or you know, tweets or, or shares on some social media, if, if you're satisfied with, with that being, you know, your baseline understanding of what's going on in the world, then that's fine. But I think anyone who maybe is just a little more knowledgeable would realize that there's no way simply by, you know, self-research are they going to be able to get a well-rounded perspective, right? And so that's where we take advantage of the fact that we do have institutions like public media that have the resources and values to create this curated product that is the the airtime, right? And for those who recognize its value, they'll say, wow, it's actually wonderful, convenient, and appreciated and valuable to me that I am able to trust um, the curators and uh, consume an ultimately much more powerful product than simply the, you know, uh, kind of short attention span, uh, a la carte consumption of media that exists. And, and, and what's crucial there is whether or not subsequent generations are going to recognize that value. I'm convinced that the value exists. I think that it is fairly obvious that the value exists, right? Um, but the question is whether or not, um, uh, that it, that, that it's going to fit into subsequent lifestyles as you, as you were correctly noting. And, and my, my, my gut tells me that it will. And my gut tells me that it will much in the same demographic fashion that it always has. I mean, we've, we've spent a lot of the time, um, having you ask me to come back to this notion that public media ultimately has this narrower, more highly educated, more affluent demographic. And I think it's simply always going to be the case that, that folks belonging to that demographic are going to have, both a busy enough life combined with the wherewithal to recognize that the kind of service that public radio provides is valuable. And I think that people will continue to value it. Um, and it'll just, it'll just be a bit of a journey to figure out exactly what path millennials and zoomers will take to recognizing that value. And then on the other side, it will be an interesting, it will be an interesting thing to see the course that public media takes in order to, to link up, you know, what they're doing to what those generations will find valuable. Mm -hmm. Do you think, do you think there needs to be a passing of the baton? Um, in terms of like the programming and yeah. So, so I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to change the economics of the donor base until basically you get all these inheritances. (laughs) Hand it over. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so pa- passing the baton. Um, 
you know, there's, 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 there's the big, big baton passes, right. That happen between, like you were saying, between radio and TV and the internet, right. Those well, are the huge batons. So that I guess, pass. I guess what I'm saying is they say that science proceeds one funeral at a time. Do you think the same thing is true in our media, public media? I think that as a medium, um, public media has proven to be uh, uh, more adaptable than you might think given the perception of the, of the media. Um, and, and I will, I will fully acknowledge that public media perhaps has a reputation of being, you know, old and stuffy or what have you. Um, I want to note that because of its decentralized nature, there's a degree to which all of these different member stations are behaving almost like laboratories in their own right to attempt to discover for themselves what does and doesn't work. Like the 50 states. Like the 50 states. Shout out to federalism. Um, shout out to federalism. Um, uh, so there's there's a degree to which the decentralized nature of public media contributes to that experimentation. I will also note, uh, to push back a little bit about, uh, uh, to the comment you made earlier that, you know, public, that Michigan radio in particular has been around for a long time. We just celebrated our 70th anniversary um, two years ago. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. We're, <laughs> Very septuagenarian. Um, yeah, boomer. Yeah, boomer. But uh, it's interesting to see. I mean, as much as Mich- as much as Michigan Radio is seventy years old, it looks nothing like it did seventy years ago. Obviously, I mean, to say that Michigan Radio is seventy years old is a great tagline to put on some marketing. But Michigan Radio, as it exists today, is probably barely a decade and a half old. When Michigan Radio started, it was two guys at the University of Michigan being like, "Hey, this newfangled radio thing is probably going to take off. We should, you know, figure that that stuff out." And you fast forward through decades of Michigan Radio essentially being basically just a a place where you could hear, you know, uh, University of Michigan football game casts and lectures broadcast from the university on through the age of classical music and the old model of, you know, NPR in the evenings and classical music and educational programming. And now finally you come into the future with this kind of newer model of a balance between local and national programs and the heavy focus on journalism. Michigan radio has only been a, um, a very, uh, it's only really held water as a flagship journalism organization for a for a, a small portion of its life, right? I mean, we've always had a newsroom, but has the newsroom been breaking important state level stories, or was the newsroom fifty years ago basically, you know, what cool new thing has the science department at the University of Michigan cooked up, right? When so, when do you think it when do you think it became a key player in our state news? Um. I am not familiar enough with the history of both Michigan journalism and the history of Michigan radio itself to answer that question definitively. But as I said, it has been, it has been a very powerful player in state news and journalism for at the very least nearly a decade. Um, and however much longer than that, I'm not sure. Um, now we are, you know, we're widely recognized as, um, probably the most, the single most, uh, um, powerful newsroom in, in, in the state, 
by by some metrics that's probably arguable right but you see you have places like both commercial radio and you know the detroit news and free press and they're all hemorrhaging money in their journalism operations they're cutting in their newsroom and our newsroom is growing right like we we when we add staff to the station um we add primarily to the content side of things. And, and in that case, it's either the, the newsroom or our, you know, our, our other on-air producers and what have you. Um, so, so not only is the model proven to be, uh, to, to work as an important, credible source of news, but it's also proving to be sustainable and to be growing as you, as you mentioned earlier, which most of these other locals institutions of, of, of similar, of a theoretically similar mission um, have not been. And on top of that, uh, there's, a, there's a certain extent to which the failures of the local newspapers and the failures of the news side of commercial journalism is a huge boon to public media because we've found a funding model that supports that mission, whereas their funding model did not. And so, wait, hold on. So, I mean, obviously, the so the the... The most uh, obvious capitalist argument is just, well, obviously the f- other local stations failing helped you because you have less competitors. Uh, how specifically is the alternate funding model and the the different, um, I guess, just fundamental business model, uh, how, how has that allowed you to, to survive instead of these other ones? Um. Uh, some of some of it, I think, has to do with a uh, um, uh, focus on the mission, right? Um, so, uh, as a, first of all, being a nonprofit with a very uh, specific set of fairly easy to understand values and a set of donors that contribute to the, that contribute and share those values, um, that's very distinct from, say, a uh, a news. It, uh, well, first of all, it's distinct from from a radio station, right? excuse me, from a commercial radio station. Um, and it's also distinct from a newspaper. And, uh, I mean, the, the simplest highlight in terms of the difference is, you know, their funding model was advertising based, right? And the whole idea was, um, we're going to generate enough eyes on us to be worth the investment of other interests solely. And that was their entire funding model, Right. Um, obviously, there's a certain extent to which isn't a subscription model, uh, yada yada yada. I don't actually know how, you know, what the breakdown is between advertising and subscription revenue in terms of a paper, um, whether local, middle-sized, or, or national. Um, but we don't advertise, right? Like our our whole thing is that, you know, we do this. This is why we do it. If you value that we do this, pay us so that we can do it. And as it turns out, that works. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I would almost venture to say that the old model of, of particularly local news, local 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 paper news, um, not only did it fail because there were these you know other options like the internet existing, um, where people no longer built their lives around you know the paper in the morning or what have you, um, but it also failed because they didn't focus enough, right? Like they didn't, they didn't have a focus of mission and values. They simply existed. They just were always there. They were like, okay, we're here to like, let you know, like what's going on in the County, I guess. Um, and, and here's a crossword puzzle, you know? Um, 
and I, I and that's not to belittle the work of the old guard local journalists because I, I understand that the same journalistic values were, were likely there to some extent. But on top of that, they were also tied up in, you know, the interests of their advertisers. They were tied up in the interests of local politicians. Um, and, and they just, they had all of these things pulling them in different directions. So how could they possibly survive in a world where they were no longer the only gig in town, you know, suddenly you've got all these other places that are cropping up and saying, we are focused on this. And the newspapers were like, we're here to do all these things kind of, you know, um, buy a paper, I guess. And I, that's kind of how I feel like, how I feel like they died. Um, as much because their, their competition came in, uh, you know, it's not just competition that kills things. It's, it, in order to be outcompeted, you have to be doing something bad. <laughs> um, and, and I feel like that's what happened. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think there were just fundamental shifts in the economics of it. The fact that, you know, being geographically um, based in a specific location doesn't necessarily grant you the same privileges and opportunities anymore. When everyone's broadcasting, you end up getting right. just really strong network effects uh, in high population density, high capital density areas that were already, you know, larger than you. And they just sort of compound those gains. Um, right. One of the things that I think is interesting that you talked about there was the um, the way that you view the, the teleology of the funding model, which is that, you know, if you like what you're doing, then pay us. And if you don't, then, you know, you don't have to pay us. Go pay someone else. Um, because right. that actually is the, the model now that's being adapted widespread Exactly. Um, by internet creators. Mm-hmm. You know, initially you had the the rise of the web where they were trying to sort of just copy this sort of existing model for media in print, which was again selling advertisements. Now advertisements, unless you're Google, are basically worthless. Um, and so more and more creators, especially are using things like Patreon, Subscribestar, et cetera, yep. to just get paid directly by their audience and by their supporters, something that this podcast... Um, we'll probably be doing in the future as we sort of work out the revenue model. Um, nice plug. Nice. <laughs> yeah. We're not, we're not doing any of that yet, but it's coming. Like, subscribe, and ring the bell. Yeah. Um, the, you can find um, us on Patreon. No, not yet. If you like what we're doing, pay us is, is obviously the future, right? And mm. there's, a, there's an interesting way in which public media has Vol- always Volunteerism, been, right? Like, right, volunteerism. And, but that's, that's distinct, right? Okay, so there's if you like what we're doing, pay us – and then we're going to live behind a paywall in either all or some of our content, right? There's that model. Mm-hmm. And then there's the more purely volunteerism, more pure volunteerism that comes up with the public, public media model, which is to say we exist. Part of our values is that we exist for everyone. Um, and if you think that is valuable, you should pay us because if you don't, we won't be around anymore, right? So it's this really interesting – you know, it's almost – You'd think there'd be a huge tragedy of the commons at some point, right? Where everyone kind of just pushes, you know, pushes the, you know, uh, passes the buck down the table until public media doesn't exist anymore. And and, it, you know, from a game theoretical perspective, it's it's really interesting to see um, what my donors do. And when I say my donors, as I, as I said earlier on, um, my primary role at Michigan Radio is major gifts. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, um, interestingly, the, as, as I already noted, uh, between 60 and 65% of 
Michigan Radio's revenue on a given year comes from donors. That's all donors. And actually, major gifts account for a relatively small part of that. You know, uh, most nonprofit organizations, they kind of have a top-down thing where most of their money comes from the top, you know, like small percentage of donors. And then the whole purpose of their, you know, smaller donor system is to, to identify and push up people, push people up that pyramid. Um, for public media, by and large, yeah, it's uh, that, a funnel. That, it's a giant sales funnel. That's what he's saying. Right. Yeah. So, so for 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 universities, for instance, and, mm-hmm. and interestingly, I don't I don't know if your audience knows this about you, but um, both Alex and I uh, participated in uh, fundraising on the university level. Oh, they don't as, know this. This is good. Oh, they they don't know this about you. Okay. So, um, uh, setting aside what we did fundraising as students, the point here is that <laughs> secret uh, things. It's it's secret. Um, Universities get most of their philanthropic dollars from the big donors, and the only reason they maintain this whole system of direct mail and and and, and working to recruit donors is to kind of backfill that pipeline and be like, okay, well, if if we recruit a thousand donors next month with this direct mail campaign, one of them will give us five hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime. Yeah, in in ten years, right? In ten or twenty years, right? When they when they're wealthy. Um, and, and that's, that's, you know, it's a model. It works. Um, for public media, it's almost flipped on its head um, to the extent that we have a very, very wide bottom. And so there's no small cohort of donors that contributes the majority of those funds. It's actually something like 80% of, of that 65%, not to, you know, get too numbery, but something like 80% of that 65% comes from gifts of under $1,000. And we've got over 36,000 individual donors um, to the station. So that's interesting because even though you have a more uh, affluent donor base, the the distribution of the base is actually rather grassroots. It is. It is. And in fact, that is something that we are trying to gradually change um, because we do recognize that we have an incredibly – wide and deep and committed donor base. Um, and we also recognize that that donor base is giving far below their ability to give. Right. And so, <laughs> of course, of course um, they are. Uh, donors so, are so giving far below their ability. Well, it, from a, I mean, the, the term is capacity, right? Um, and, and, and from a, from a strategy standpoint, public mm-hmm. media is currently, um, working hard to, uh, uh, implement strategies that will carry us uh, to having better return on those donors who who do have greater capacity. Because traditionally, the, the, our entire model has just been like, you know, give a penny, you know, like if this is valuable to you, raise your hand, say you're going to participate, even just $5, you know. Um, and, and on the back of that, we've developed this huge, consistent annual donor program and what we've come to realize is these people are committed to us. They love us, but you know, some of them can uh, can afford to be giving tw- two times, five times, ten times, a hundred times what they're giving. And and the interesting thing is that they're even probably committed enough to make that leap. And it's just a question of putting the time in from a development standpoint to develop the relationships necessary to to, to convert into those kinds of gifts. And that's actually part of what my role is and why I was brought on to Michigan radio was to kind of uh, work in that direction. And, and so far we've had uh, a good amount of success with that with more to come. So 
Awesome. Well, I mean, that sounds really great. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to have this discussion. Um, it's not always uh, easy to find somebody with an interesting level-headed perspective, especially on the state of our media environment. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, and uh, you should tell your listeners about what you used to do at Greenline sometime because that was fun. <laughs> Those were fun times. Well, yeah, insofar as my work at um, Michigan State University's student fundraising organization it, it becomes relevant, I will certainly uh, bring things up and share details, although uh, it's not, 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 not particularly relevant at the moment. But uh, regardless... <laughs> Alex, I'm sure I'm sure we'll have you on again to um, have similar discussions. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything um, before I let you go here that you'd want to point to our listeners to, um, particularly those who may not uh, be introduced to Michigan Public Radio, where they might start approaching, where they might start listening? Do you have any suggestions on that? Yeah. So thank you for the opportunity to make a plug. <laughs> um, if you live in Michigan or if you don't, um, you can go to michiganradio.org um, and there you'll not only be able to listen to our stream, but you'll be able to see all of our online content. Um, uh, Michigan Radio is just one, as I said, of many really uh, incredible public radio stations across the country. And if you've resonated with anything that I've said today about how public, what, what public radio's values are when it comes to journalism and media, then I really encourage you to check out your local member station, um, and give them a listen because, uh, it, I really do believe that you will become a more informed, calmer person, <laughs> uh, when consuming the news in that way. So. Well, Alex, thanks so much. I'll talk to you later. Cheers. Thanks.